You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Everybody all right today? Good deal. Well, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, so if you want to go ahead and turn there and get that out and open on your lap, that would be helpful. And uh, as you're turning to that, uh, a couple of things. Uh, one is if you are new to Stonegate, if this is your first time to be here, my name is Rodney and I'm one of the pastors here at Stonegate and it is such an honor and a privilege to have you this morning. Uh, we are so grateful that you chose to come and worship with us and we're praying that you meet Jesus this morning in some really good ways for your own soul. So we're praying for that, asking the Lord for that. And if there's one thing that would really help us serve you, it's if you would grab the card under your seat. There is a red side and a black side of that card. And if you will grab the, that card and fill out the black side of it, it's guest information. And at the end of the service, put that in the offering basket. It would really help us serve you. We'll get you some information this week, um, all of those kind of good things to help you kind of get off and started on a, on a good foot. So if you'll do that, that would be so, so helpful uh, for us. And then secondly, I need to take just a, a brief moment to catch us up on where we are with All In. And so let me just kind of jump into that by saying this is such an exciting time to be a part of the church family. Uh, when I think about our church right now, I am just blown away at the spiritual vibrancy that God has gifted us with. That is a gift from God. I can't manufacture that. You can't manufacture that. That is a gift from God in our church family to be stirring us up like that in a love and worship of Jesus. And God's doing that. People are meeting Jesus here. People are growing up in Jesus here. Disciples are being made here. When I think about what's happening in our kids' ministry, what's happening in our youth ministry, I just could not be more proud right now of what's happening across the breadth of our church. When I think about orphan care right now, I'm so encouraged by what the Lord is doing in our church family. Uh, when I think about church planting right now, I'm so encouraged. Over the last year, we have sent roughly a tithe of our people toward church planting. Uh, somewhere between 120 and 130 of our people we have sent to help church planters get their churches up and off the ground. And I'm just so, so grateful for that. At the same time, this morning, we just had a Discover Stonegate class. Um, we had 40 to 50 people in another Discover Stonegate class. And I'm just so amazed at how the Lord just continues to add to our number and gift us people to steward here as a church family. I just could not be more excited about all of that. Um, when I think about, you know, a year ago, if you were here a year ago, we started on the all-in kind of journey. And, uh, I, you know, this has been one of the best years in the life of our church, one of the greatest years that we've had thus far. And all-in has been such a major component of that. The number one goal has always been from day one that the Lord would teach us what it means to walk by faith. God would cultivate these sorts of things in us. And God has so been doing that across our church family. It's been unbelievable. And, you know, if you go back to a year ago, uh, our number one goal was 100% participation, that all of us would go on that journey of what it looks like to walk by faith. And uh, our secondary goal, and I want to say it was clearly secondary, was $6 million to help do three things, cultivate ministry, which is the ongoing disciple-making work here, plant the gospel, that's our orphan care and church planting uh, endeavors here, and then to put down roots, which is us getting into a new base for mission. And hear me on this, we're 16 or 17 months away from being in a new facility. Oh, isn't that going to be a good day? That's going to be a good day. We'll have been in here for a total of nine years, and this place has been such a blessing for us. And at the same time, it's going to be so great for us to have our own new base for mission on Walnut Grove and 287. That's like on the horizon. And if you go back a year, you know that we did the, the set of sermons called All In that led to a commitment Sunday. And then a year ago, this last Sunday, we all gathered at the high school and had what was one of just the most memorable days for me as a pastor that I've ever had. And I think it's one of the most memorable days for us as a church family. I'll put a picture up there of that day. Uh, it was the day that we announced the collective all-in commitments. We had a goal of six million and the Lord like just kind of opened up heaven and dumped on us commitments totaling 11 million dollars, 11 million, 138,016 dollars. Just an unbelievable day where the Lord just gave us so much, the steward to be responsible for. You know, anytime we talk about that day, I always just want to be so quick to say this. That is one of those days. I just kind of call it 0.1% days. It's like those things that you hear God doing about sometimes, but you rarely get to participate in yourself. And on that particular day, the Lord let us as a church family in on that. He welcomed us into that moment. 
Just such a remarkable, miracle sort of a day for us as a church family. And now, if you've been in with us over the last year, you know that uh, we just had our one-year kind of anniversary of All In, and we did a set of sermons called Risk, highlighting the same sort of walking by faith, the same sort of, of themes that All In is about. And our number one goal in Risk was to say again, our number one thing is for the Lord to cultivate a heart of faith in us. Our secondary goal after this moment happened a year ago is we just said we're asking the Lord for $11.2 million to help us in those three initiatives of cultivate ministry, plant the gospel, and to put down roots. And I wanted to give you an update on what that number came back at. So if you remember at the end of Risk, we had a commitment Sunday and really a couple of things happened on that commitment Sunday. It gave people that weren't here a year ago an opportunity to jump into All In with us. And it gave everyone who did participate a year ago a chance to wrestle with the Lord and to ask the Lord, is my generosity, does it still have me on the leading edge of my faith? And so we all got a chance to wrestle with that and made those sort of commitments um, a few weeks ago. And over the last month, we've kind of been collecting all those, getting all those organized. Um, and I want to give you the number on where all that stood. And that number is about to be on the screen for you. It is $11,551,278. And that is something to celebrate for us as a church. I just, I'm just so continually amazed at how the Lord has provided for us as a church family. It is so humbling for me to see. And I, I want to just say thank you for those who have been on the leading edge of your faith in terms of your generosity. Like you're there, it's scary. It's scary for me and my family. It's scary probably for you if you're on the leading edge of your faith. And it's just right there that we get to meet Jesus and Jesus gets to become more real to us than he ever has been before. And so I just want to say thank you for you as a church family in, in the way that you are stepping into this moment with Jesus. And one thing that is just particularly uh, meaningful to me when I think about this number is over the last year, I just said this a minute ago, that we have sent about 120 or 130 of our people away to church planters. And that totals in commitments to somewhere around $400,000. Now that $400,000 of those people that have, have gone to those church plants, we have looked at them and just said, dude, be generous where you are. Help those church planters. Help those church plants begin to thrive and to begin to do well there. And so that $400,000 is embedded into that number that you see there. But here's the amazing thing when I look at that. And by the way, I wanna commend you as a church. Churches just don't do that. In a really critical season like this is for us as we're looking at a new building and all that down the road, churches normally don't, they don't operate with an open-handed way. They don't say, hey, here's people and resources. Man, go bless church planters. People, normally churches don't, but you are a church that has done that that has been open-handed with our people and our resources. We've just watched really good young leaders walk out our door to help church planters begin to get, you know, to get going. And with that, we have watched about $400,000 in commitments go with them, which we are gladly doing. It's painful, but it's a great thing. I'm, I, I so commend you as a church for doing that. And one of the things I, I've just been blown away with is we have watched that $400,000 go towards some church planters and the Lord increased from last year to this year, are all in commitments by right at $400,000. Now, I, I hope that that can just be a moment that you're getting to like us collectively, we're witnessing God doing these things as a church. And I pray that it would be a moment where God would use these sort of moments to cultivate new steps of faith in you. Like the next time God gets you to a risky place, like for us as a church, okay, here's a bunch of our people and resources and go make it happen. That the next time God has you in a place where you're gonna say something very similar to that, that this would be a moment where God would begin to build faith in you so that in that moment, you could say yes to that. You're getting to watch God do these things for us as a church and then it would create in you a joyful hope and expectation that God would do that in you and in my life in particular. So I'm just praying that God would be using these moments to stir up faith in new and bigger and brighter ways in all of us, amen? So with that, I wanna pray for us uh, this morning. So Father, we just wanna say thank you as a church family for how you have provided for us, for how you continue to meet the needs of this church family. And God, I pray that you would begin to cultivate bigger and brighter faith in this church. God, in me, will you start with me? God, I pray that these moments that we have witnessed over the last year would be moments where we as a church family get to grow in our expectation and belief in you. 
God, I pray that we would all be willing to embrace risk in new and deeper ways in every heart in this room. So God, would you cultivate that? Would you be doing that? And God, we thank you for your provision. God, we we pray that you would help us steward that well. God, we just feel such a deep responsibility with what you've entrusted to us. And God, we pray that the way that we would use that would be pleasing and honorable to you. And Father, we pray for the move that we're in the middle of as we just think over the next 16 or 17 months. God, I pray that you would give us everything we need over the next 16 or 17 months to do that in a good and bright and healthy way. And Father, I pray that every part of this church family, as we think about this move coming up for us, that if we're on the peripheral edge of this church, God, that we would sink our teeth in and get into the inner core of it. And God, we would own this church. God, that we we would own what is happening here, the vibrancy of our faith, the the sort of walking by faith. God, that we would be willing participants right in the middle of that. So, oh God, would you do that? Would you do that? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Okay, so this morning we are gonna be in Ephesians chapter five. Last week, we're talking about marriage. That's the big theme. And last week we talked about the men's role in marriage. And this week we're talking about the ladies' role in marriage. And I'm a guy who is going to do that. Welcome to like the 42,000 problems that could go wrong in a moment like this, right? So pray for me this morning. So let me just back up and just make a couple of comments on marriage. Uh, Marriage is what the Bible is about. It's what the whole Bible is about. If you think about how the Bible starts and stops, you see that. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 with creation. God speaks and everything we see exists. Then you get to Genesis 2, and if you're reading for the first time, you'd be asking, okay, what's the follow-up to that? What could possibly match Genesis 1? And what matches Genesis 1 in the Bible is Genesis 2. And what you find in Genesis 2 is a man and woman falling in love, and you see a marriage happen. Then you go to the end of the Bible, and in a sense, you have Genesis 1 and 2 replayed. In in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, you have God recreating and restoring this broken world. In a sense, he is recreating. And then in in Revelation 21, verse 2, you have the same picture. What's going to follow that recreating, restoring work of God? Here it is in Revelation 21, verse 2. And John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, a marriage. Revelation 21, 1, recreation. Revelation 21, 2, you have a picture of the marriage. It's a picture of heaven. And heaven in this, in this moment in Revelation 21 is described and viewed as an eternal honeymoon with our groom, Jesus. It's an eternal honeymoon where day after day after day, our joy in Jesus is going to be growing forever. That's heaven. That's the incredibly bright future that the Bible ends with. It's marriage in the beginning and marriage at the end. One commentator says it like this. It's not as though marriage is just one theme among many others in the Bible. Instead, instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible within which the other themes find their places. The Bible is about marriage. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5 shows us, and we've already covered this territory, he shows us that marriage is, earthly marriages are bigger than earthly marriages. That earthly marriages are really just metaphors for the eternal marriage, for the marriage. In a really you know, clear way in, in verses 31 and 32, Paul says, our earthly marriages are metaphors of God's covenant love to the church. They are saying something about that. They're pointing to that. They're like signposts that that are meant to allow people to see them and not obsess about them, the the marriage, their particular little marriage. But it's a signpost that's meant to point to a greater reality, the marriage that God has with his people. And so this is what marriage is for. But but Paul is also showing us in this passage that, that marriage is not a metaphor just in some abstract sort of theoretical sense up here, but that metaphor presses all the way down into the roles within marriage how a husband is to operate, how a lady is to operate. It it presses itself all the way down into that. And you see this in verses 22 through 25. Look at what Paul says Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So that that is a metaphor in so many ways. For the husband is the head of the, the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. 
This passage is showing us that there is a divine and distinct calling on both the man and the woman in a marriage. And we might summarize it like this. As heads, husbands have the unique privilege of showing off the gracious love and authority of Jesus in the way that they love their wives. And husbands, if you missed last week, I just wanna plead with you, go back and get the audio. You need to listen to last week if you missed it. So husbands, as heads, have the unique privilege of showing off the gracious love of Jesus and authority of Jesus. Then on the other side, as helpers, wives have the unique privilege of showing off the church's joyful response to the love and authority of Jesus in the way that they respond to their husband. Now, I love what Kathy Keller uh, said about this, this interplay. She said both women and men get to play the Jesus role. It's not like one role is better than the other. One role is down here. One role is up there. They're both awesome roles. She's saying that, that both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. One, the husband, gets to play the Jesus role in terms of his sacrificial authority. Ladies, they get to play the Jesus role in his sacrificial submission. And both of these two roles, both of these two um, callings by God, they're distinct and they're divine. They're callings from God. And they're both precious gifts from God. One to his sons, one to his daughters, so that they could show something about God's covenant love to the church. But they are precious gifts. They're distinct, yes, but they are both precious and honorable gifts from God. So last week we talked about husbands and their role as Jesus displaying heads in the home. And this week we're gonna talk about ladies. And here's how we could summarize that role. That wives are to be Jesus portraying helpers in their home. Wives are to be Jesus portraying helpers. Now I'm just gonna spend the rest of our time kind of teasing those things out this morning. And it's gonna come in two sections. Section one is the command. And section two is we're gonna have to spend some time clarifying the command because it's so prone to abuses and misunderstandings and caricatures. So the command and some clarification of the command. So first, the command. There are two commands in this passage, one to husbands, one uh, to wives. Here's the one to husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, just wanna make this point to you so you hear this very clearly. In no place in the New Testament do you ever see a husband commanded to subjugate his wife. Not gonna have it. If that's your view of your role in marriage, that is a sinful distortion of headship. Headship in the Bible is a husband willing to lay down his life for his family so that his family can then flourish. That's a husband. A husband is one who is quick to be a sacrificial servant like Jesus. Now you get to the other side of this, the command to the ladies, and it's a really popular one. Find it in verse 22. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, verse 22. <laughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, our culture scorns the word submission, calling it a bad thing. The Bible, to contrast that, looks at that word and calls it a beautiful thing. Now, before we jump into the you know, particular husband-wife, kind of that inner working of, of authority and submission, I wanna take a step back and normalize the command to submit. So let's just, everybody needs to feel that command because it is not unique to wives, it is given to every Christian. Hear me say this clearly. Every Christian is given the command to submit their lives in many different ways. Every Christian is called to submit to Jesus. Like this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who is trusting Jesus as their savior, trusting his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. A Christian is one who is throwing their life upon the work of Jesus, trusting him in that way. And at the same time, we're submitting to his lordship. We're saying, I don't have rights to my life anymore. You've got the rights to my life. That is what it means to be a Christian. Every Christian is, is intended to submit to Jesus. But that's not the only way Christians submit, to, uh, submit. Christians are also called to submit to a local group of pastors in a local church. Every Christian is called to do that. Hebrews 13, 17 are, uh, makes that very clear. That, that all of us are, and by the way, I'm a pastor in a local church and God has called me to submit myself to the plurality of pastors in our church. So we're all called to submit to a local group of pastors to, to keep the, the ball rolling there. We're not just called to submit to Jesus in a, in a local group of pastors. We're also called to submit to God-ordained government in our life. 
So that's a president, that's governors, that's law enforcement. That's all the people that God has put over us in authority in in our government. God has called us to submit to them. God has called employees to submit to employers. That's a, a submission authority thing that every Christian feels. He has called every child to submit to their parents. That's another way that submission plays itself out. Then in Ephesians 5 verse 21, Paul says, Every Christian, this is, this is like every Christian here, there should be a mutual submission happening. In a sense, Paul is saying every Christian's relationships should be flavored by, it should be infused with the fragrance of submission. A quick voluntary response in every Christian that flavors every relationship to pick up the towel and serve another. That should flavor every Christian's uh, relationships. I love how one person said it. He said, the constant attitude within a faithful Christian community is a Christ-like readiness to submit. That is to adjust and to adapt, to fit in, to help make it work, to find the win-win outcome. And even at a personal price, He's saying that should flavor every relationship that every Christian has, this idea of submission. So it's not unique. And by the way, these are the shoes that Jesus leaves for every Christian to step into. Jesus modeled this. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says that have the same mind as Christ. And here's the mind of Christ. He did not consider his own needs above the needs of others. He considered the needs of others above his own needs. Paul's saying that should flavor every relationship that you have. That sort of quickness to submit, that sort of quickness to pick up the towel and serve them, consider their needs above your own. Jesus in his life shows us that the way up is down. That's the way you go up. The way to greatness is that well-worn and paved path of humility and that others-centeredness. That is the way to greatness in the Christian life. So this is not unique to wives. It's something that every one of us should feel this morning. So if you're a husband, the response to Ephesians 5 should not be, let me make sure my wife is in line here. That should not be the response. The response should be, am I submitting like this? Does this flavor my relationships in, in my own life? So it, it is not a, an abnormal calling. It is a normal calling. It is a calling that every Christian feels. Now, this passage is showing us, though, that in the husband-wife relationship, this headship-helper dance, that wives have been given a unique calling to submit to the head of the home, the, the husband. Wives have been given a unique calling to do that. And it's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It is not a demeaning thing. It is a gospel-displaying, Jesus-portraying thing. This is how Jesus operated. And wives have a unique role in their marriage to show that part of Jesus in their marriage. Now, before we go on, I need to do a little contextual work because here is just the, the, if you just have your fingers up to the air of our culture, you're gonna know really quickly that our culture hates these sort of passages in the Bible, does not like them at all. And, uh, and, and even people who like kind of respect the Bible, they would really like to remove this out of the Bible. But if they respect the Bible, they don't just like cut it out of the Bible. They, they kind of the, the going kind of response to it is let's explain it out of the Bible. And here's the typical way it's, it's explained out of the Bible. People will look at a passage like this and say that Paul's writing to a first century audience and he's writing to a first century mindset. And this particular command reflects that first century sinful mindset, not God's original intent. So it's really a product of of culture, they would say. It's not rooted in creation. The problem with that is the Bible. And the Bible is showing, like Paul is showing this. Like, where where is he getting this from? Like, where where is Paul pulling these sort of ideas from? Is he looking around at culture and just saying, man, let me just kind of figure out what would be the best way for like husbands and wife to relate to each other? Let me just kind of figure that out and I'll put it into Ephesians. Is that what he's doing or Is he, in this passage, quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, therefore his mindset is definitely locked onto Genesis 1 and 2, God's original intent and creation. I think it's really obvious in this passage that this is not rooted in a first century culture. This is rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. It's it's, it's rooted in God's original intent and, and creation of Genesis 1 and 2. So let me go back and revisit Genesis 1 and 2 very briefly. In Genesis 1 and 2, here's what we find. God created Adam and put him in a garden. And surprisingly, God sees Adam and for the first time in the creation narrative says, there's something wrong with this. It is not good. This is not a good thing that I'm looking at. There is no suitable helper for Adam. But Adam hasn't been awakened yet to that not goodness in creation. 
So to awaken Adam to the awareness of what is not good, God parades animals in front of Adam for Adam to name them. So he names this one, and he names that one, and he names that one, and he names that one. After he's named them all, Adam then is awakened to the awareness of something's not good here. I have no relational equivalent in all of creation. I have, there's no one in creation that is like me. That there, yes, there's the grandeur and glory of, uh, of these other animals, but none of those animals are like me. There's no suitable helper for me. So God says, Adam, I'm gonna make you a suitable helper, a suitable helper. And this is where the narrative slows. God looks at Adam, his son, and says, Adam, I want you to lay down. I'm gonna make you something that's gonna blow your mind. And Adam lays down, God breaks off a rib, he forms Eve, he presents Eve as the father in the first wedding. Then he turns around and marries Adam and Eve as the first pastor of the first wedding, unites them together. But, but I want you to see in Genesis 1 and 2, what we have set up is both this headship and helper dynamic embedded into the original intent. When God is going to make Eve, he's going to make Eve as a helper fit for Adam, as a helper. So it's gonna be same in, in worth and value, but distinct in role. Adam's gonna have a role, she's gonna have a role. That, that role helper, that, that, or that word helper is called, or the Hebrew word is azer. And that is not a demeaning word. That is a wonderful word in the Bible. God himself is called an azer in the Bible. So there's nothing demeaning about that. There's something glorious about that. This is what God is for his people in Psalm 33, verse 20. He is a help and a shield. He's an azer. He's a helper for us. And this is exactly the role that God has invited a lady into in marriage. I love what Mary Cassian, who's wrote extensively about these sort of things, what she says about this role of, of helper. She says, an, an azer provides help that enriches this is the role of a lady that enriches and makes the recipient more fruitful than he would be without that help. God created the woman to enrich the man by providing invaluable support that without her, he would not have. What makes the man, what, what the man lacks, the woman accomplishes. She makes it possible for them to receive the blessing that he could not achieve alone. She plays a vital part in the survival and success of the human race. Without her, man could not be fruitful, physically or metaphorically. That is the dignity bestowed on that word helper, that unique calling that God has brought a lady into. Now, I wanna read one commentator's just summation of what we learn about these roles in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's what he said. I think he does a great job of summarizing. He says it like this. The, inso the insight offered right here in the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, the insight offered here is bold. It is saying that the delicate interplay between male head and female helper is not a mutation in human social evolution to be replaced by later developments. Rather, it is a stroke of divine genius, original to our existence. Rightly understood and beautifully lived out, God's wise creation of head with helper is a permanent and glorious reality. He goes on, headship did not come down to us historically as an artifact of oppressive patriarchy. It began in heaven and came down into this world creationally as a pathway to human flourishing. The evils of domination and slavery we as sinful humans invented. But the head with helper dance of complementarity sprang from deep within the intuitions of God himself. We men and women today do not automatically know the steps to this dance. We must learn the steps to this dance. But if we will receive it by faith, trusting in the goodness and wisdom of God, we can then explore its potentialities for joyful human magnificence. That's what we learn in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's that Genesis 1 and 2 narrative that Paul is pulling from in Ephesians 5 as he develops it further, instructing the church in Ephesus. So this is the command. This is the context of the command. Now I wanna clarify a few things around it. Clarifying a few things around it. What does submission mean? What does it mean? Let me give you a working definition of it. Submission is a cheerful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. Now, again, if you aren't married or you're a husband in the room, don't think wives, 
think this is for me. Like in what, in what area of my life is God calling me to submit to Jesus, to maybe an employer, to maybe a parent? What role is God calling me to submit? And is this me? It's the cheerful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. Let me just break that down. Submission is cheerful. It's less a set of actions and it's more of an attitude. It's a disposition. It's a mentality. It's a cheerful willingness to get behind someone else, to push someone else, to be a helper to someone else. It's a cheerful willingness to do that. So it's less a legalistic set of like one size fits all rules it's less that. There's no way I could look at anyone in the room and say, here's what it's gonna look like in every scenario. The situations are way too diverse. It's not a legalistic set of rules. It's a disposition, a cheerful willingness to follow, to get behind someone, to support someone, to be an azer to someone, to help them get something done, to enrich that relationship, to extend the reach of the one you're following, to be easy to lead, to put the final decision in the lap of the one that you're following. Now, the opposite of that, the opposite of a cheerful willingness to, to follow is that, that person that's cantankerous, that person that's, that's edgy, that, that person that's always resistant, always fault-finding, always negative. They, they have a, I've got to get my way mentality. It's my way or the highway. That's the opposite of this mentality or this posture, attitude of submission. So it's a cheerful willingness to follow the one God has placed in authority over you. God has placed all sorts of authority over us. Wives in particular, verse 23 shows you one area for this. When it says this, the husband is the head of the wife. So that, that means the, the husband did not put himself there voluntarily. It wasn't like he came out saying, I've got to be the head. This is something that God has done, that the God has made. The, the mood of that sentence in verse 23 is in the indicative mood. That, that means it's a statement of fact. It's not a command. God is not saying Husband, I'm commanding you to be this. He's just stating what he has already done. It's a statement of fact. It's like saying that the sky is blue or white men can't dance or it's those sort of things. It's just a statement of fact, right? And God is just saying, this is what you are if you're a husband. This is what you are if you're a wife. It's this head helper, complimentary dance that's going on here. So submission recognizes that God placed authority and joyfully and willingly follows it. Listen to one guy describe, kind of put a stamp on this. He says it this way. Welcoming her husband's headship is not reducible to a set of legalistic rules. Christian marriage is like a waltz, not a military march. I love that imagery. It's not a, it's gotta be this way, everybody do it, this, this, this. It's a waltz. There's an art form to it. It's a waltz, not a military march. By trusting the Lord and embracing her calling, a wife uh, a Christian wife empowers her husband as no one else on the face of the earth can do. Do you know you have that opportunity for every married lady to empower your husband with a voice that no one else has in your husband's life? She is so secure in Christ that she is no longer jealous to establish her own identity separate from her husband's. She understands how profound it is to be one flesh with him and she gives him her whole heart and her practical support. Now, wives, here's your first question. Does that describe you? Is that your posture within your marriage? Now, let me take a moment to describe what submission is not. It is so prone to abuses in the past and even present. It is so prone to misunderstanding. It's so prone to um, false caricatures by those who don't want anything to do with it that it takes some working out. And if you are an older lady in our church, you need to hear what Paul says in Titus 2. Because you, you need to think about these and work some of these nuances out with, with headship and submission, how that plays itself out. In Titus 2, uh, Paul looked at the older lady and says, you need to be a part of teaching. You need to take younger ladies under your wing and teach them sound and solid theology. You need to teach them what it looks like to love Jesus, to be serious about Jesus and the pursuit of God, what it looks like to be self-controlled. You need to teach them that. And you need to teach them what it looks like to love their husbands and be submissive to their husbands. What so many ladies, this issue is so prone to misunderstanding that what so many young married ladies need is an older lady willing to take them under wing and to work these things out. If you're an older lady, just feel that charge from Paul to like grow in this, develop your understanding of it, to work at it, to, to, to learn the nuances of it so you can be a good equipping voice across our church family. So what is it not? Let me give you four quick things. Number one, 
Submission doesn't mean a wife is unequal to her husband in value, capacity, or competency. That is not what submission means. Both head and helper, husband and wife are equal in value and worth, just distinct in role. Equal in value and worth, distinct in role. Much like God himself, right? God exists as one God, but three distinct persons. And each of those distinct persons are fully God. But the son submits to the father. And John, Jesus says, I don't do anything but what the father tells me to do. And the spirit submits to both the father and son. So even within God, they're all equal in worth, father, son, and spirit, but there is distinction in roles. So don't buy into the caricature that says distinction in roles means that we are demeaning and like stratifying uh, dignity and worth. That's not true. You can have distinct roles and be very equal in worth and dignity and competency for that matter. My wife far excels me in many areas. She is a gifted lady. She outpaces me in so many areas of my life. So this is not a matter of competency or or qualifications. It's a matter of divine calling. So equal in worth, but distinct in roles. Submission does not mean a wife is unequal to her husband in value, capacity, or competency. Number two, submission does not mean unquestioned agreement. That is not what submission, that is a sinful distortion of, of headship and submission. Husbands in the room, if you are not creating an environment where your wife can freely and safely offer her wisdom and insight into all of life for your family, you are distorting headship and submission. That is a ungodly head if you're not creating a safe environment for your wife to fully express herself. That is a a sinful distortion of what it means to be a head. A a biblical, wise, Jesus-portraying head in in the home is cultivating that sort of an atmosphere. I want Laura to know I love to hear her insight. There has been many moments in our marriage where apart from her insight, I would have totally run us off a cliff. We have valued from her insight. We have greatly benefited from her insight. We would not be where we are as a family apart from her insight. If you're a lady in the room and you don't feel that openness, you need to verbalize that to your husband. That should be a safe environment for that to happen. This does not mean uh, unquestioned agreement. Number three, submission does not mean oppression. Now, many in uh, in our culture believe that, that submission equals oppression. And some of that has been rooted in history, both past and present, where headship equals dictatorship. And if headship equals dictatorship, who wants to live there? No one wants to live there, right? That's, no, that's not a, a place where anybody is gonna ever flourish. So if headship equals dictatorship, yes, submission equals oppression. But dictatorship is not biblical headship. That is a sinful distortion of headship. Biblical headship is a Jesus portraying man willing to lay down his life like a seed falling into the soil of his family and dying there so everyone else in his family can flourish. That's biblical headship. And when you have that sort of biblical headship, submission does not equal oppression, it equals liberation. It allows everyone else in the house to flourish and become everything that God would have them be. So submission does not mean oppression. Now, let me say something very clearly here. If in your house right now, there is physical abuse, abuse of any kind going on, I wanna look at every lady in the room. Please, every lady look at me. I want you to hear, if that is happening in your home, please tell someone. Submission does not equal staying in that environment where you're going to be harmed. That is not submission. So if that is you this morning, I know everything in you probably doesn't wanna tell anyone. I am begging you, if that's you, tell someone. Do not leave here apart from doing that. Staying in that environment is not submission. That would, that would be the opposite of it. So please let someone know. Submission does not equal oppression. Number four, submission does not mean the husband is the wife's ultimate authority. Submission does not mean that the husband is the wife's ultimate authority. Now, wives, this is one of those things you have to hear with clarity, okay? Now, hear this. Wives, your ultimate authority is not your earthly husband, but Jesus, your eternal husband. That's your ultimate authority. So, here's the implication of that. Submission to your husband stops 
where disobedience to Jesus starts. The moment your husband tries to lead you to a place that would be sinful and not honoring to Jesus, that is the moment where you are obligated as a wife to say to your husband, here's the posture, I wanna follow you, I, I want that, I want you to be ahead that I can follow and be fully behind in this moment. Everything in me wants to say yes to you, but here's the action, that's the posture, that's the attitude, here's the action, I just can't follow you into that. I wanna be able to say yes, but I can't disobey Jesus to say yes to you. I can't do that. Th that is how submission and headship work themselves out. Submission does not mean the husband is the wife's ultimate authority. As soon as he tries to lead you to a place that Jesus would not have you go, you're obligated to say no to your earthly husband so you can say yes to your eternal one. Now, this passage also gives us a few phrases to put some clarifying statements around submission and headship. In verse 22, Paul says, to your own husbands, submit to your own husbands. This is not a calling for, for every woman to submit to every man. It's a particular calling for wives to submit to a particular man, their husbands. And ladies in the room, I want you to look at me here again. This is one of those things I think you need to hear this morning. Your submission to your, to your husband, a sort of cheerful willingness to follow the one God's placed in authority over you. That is a beautiful gift to give your husband. One of the most meaningful things you can give your husband. And I know deep down in the heart of every woman in this room, if you're married, you desire for your husband to be a godly head, to be a Jesus portraying head. You want a godly man, not an emasculated man, right? And I, I know deep down every woman wants that. And if you want that, this is a gift you have to give him. It's not okay to, to want that, yet not give him this gift. If you want him to become that, here's what you have to do. You have to trust God enough to take your hands off the reins and to take those reins and to put those reins into the lap of your husband so that he can feel the weight of his family. That, that is how God grows him into a godly, Jesus-portraying head. So if you want that from your man, you've got to gift him that, that gift of submission, that gift of cheerful willingness to follow that man that, he, that God's placed in authority over you. I mean, I'm just praying by God's grace as you trust Jesus like that and as you do that, that you get to see your man grow up into all that Jesus would have him be. So it's to your own husbands. And then in verse 24, there's this interesting phrase in everything. Now that's prone for a lot of misunderstanding. In everything, does that mean that everything my husband says I need to do that I have to do? No to that. I think that word in everything means that no part of a wife's life is kept from her husband or vice versa. No part of a husband's life is kept from his wife. I think it means that, that for a wife, there is no part of her life or soul or heart that she is saying, you have access to all this, but just not this area of my life and heart. Part of what it means to be one flesh is to say it's, it's unique. It's unlike any other relationship. Every other friendship stops short of in everything, but the one flesh marriage relationship. It's the one relationship where a husband and a wife are saying to the other, I'm inviting you all the way in. It is, it is unequaled access. It's an all access pass. You get down to every single little part of me. That is what it means to be in everything. And then it says in verse 22, as to the Lord. That dignifies submission. I love that statement. Now, now, wives, this is another one of those moments that you just have to catch what I'm about to say here. Submission to your husband is an, is an act of submission to Jesus. But that is what that ask to the Lord means. It means it's much less about your husband and much more about Jesus. So submission to your husband is an act of submission to Jesus. Now, here's the next part of that statement. And the only way you'll ever submit to your husband is to be fully submitted to Jesus. That's what that as the Lord means. That, that submission and headship, the way that plays out from a wife's perspective is really less about your husband and how you're relating to him. And it's much more about Jesus and how you're relating to him. The primary question that every wife has to answer is not whether their husband is reliable and trustworthy, but if the God who placed that husband over them is reliable and trustworthy. That's the question. Do we trust God enough to submit to our husbands? Do we trust God enough to submit to our employers? Do we trust God enough to submit to our parents? Do we trust God enough to submit to the government? 
Do we trust, do we trust the God who has placed them in authority over us enough to, to, to entrust ourselves to the, the leadership of that person? That's the question. Maybe you could phrase it this way. The question that every wife has to answer is this. Am I ready to trust God to lead my husband to lead me? Am I ready to do that? Am I willing to, to let go of control enough to allow that to happen? Now, I wanna just give one objection and then we'll wrap this up. I just can hear the objection in many of our ladies, but you don't know my husband. And in a lot of ways, you're right, I don't know your husband. And I can just hear that objection playing itself out by saying, but my husband, spiritually speaking, is a newborn baby. Now, husbands, if that's true, you better get about the work of growing up really fast, right? But, but wives, I, I can just hear that my husband's a spiritual baby. Like, he's still in diapers, messing all over him. I mean, he's just, it's just bad, man, it's bad. I can just so hear that objection. Now, if that's you and your lady in the room, Hear this, you prove your spiritual maturity by your joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. Even if he is not as spiritually mature as you would like. Part of how you are displaying your maturity is by still entrusting yourself to God who has put him over you. That's how the play out of that works. Now to husbands in the room. Husbands, I hope that when you hear a message like this, you don't think, oh man, it's a good thing my wife needs to get in it. I hope you're not thinking that and I hope you are thinking this. Wow, if God has called my wife to entrust herself to my loving leadership, there's gonna be a day where I'm held responsible for that. There's gonna be a day where I stand before Jesus and I'm called to account for that. And you know what I think that day is gonna look like for a lot of men? We're gonna get before Jesus and Jesus is gonna ask us how we performed his head, how we did his head. And we're gonna start wanting to talk but God, I did this and I did that. You wouldn't believe how awesome we, and God's gonna say, hey, why don't you stop talking? Just get out of the way for a moment. And can I just take a look at your wife? And I think in taking a look at our wives, God will see everything he needs to see about how well or not well we did in the home. Now, husbands, we need to own that. We need to feel that in a massively deep way across this room right now. Now, to the ladies in the room, one of the most precious gifts God has given you is the gift to be a helper to your husband. It's a precious gift. It's a way that you're showing the world what Jesus is like, who Jesus is. You're painting a picture for the world in that. When you're a, when you're a healthy azer in your home, a suitable helper in your home, when you're living under that leadership with a joyful cheerfulness, you're saying something to the world. When a wife is not an expert in the faults of her husband, but in the strengths of her husband, man, you are saying something to the world. When a wife doesn't slander her husband, but speaks encouragement to him, when a wife positions herself as the most affirming voice in her husband's life, you are showing the world a picture of who God is. That's what you're doing in that moment. It's a beautiful gift to give your husband. So husbands, where is it that you need to grow this morning? Wives, where is it that you need to grow this morning so that we as a church would have marriages all across our church family pointing faithfully to the eternal marriage? Here's the thing in all of our lives. Husbands, you're gonna fail. Wives, you're gonna fail. And do you know what all of us need? We need grace, amen? We need to call upon the Lord for grace. We need to ask the Lord for grace. And when we receive the grace from God, it covers our sins. And here's what it's gonna do for us this morning. It's gonna allow us to walk out of this room in a new way, amen? So let's pray together. And I'm gonna allow you a moment to allow just the spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away what wouldn't be.
here's what I'm fully convinced of across this room. At the end of the day, there really are no such thing as marriage problems. There are people problems and sin problems that show themselves in our marriages or in our singleness. So so here's what that really means for all of us in the room. What, What is needed in this moment is for us to ride ourselves with the Lord, for husbands to get down on their faces before God, owning and confessing their sin, repenting of their sin, that their passivity, their neglect of the beautiful gift of marriage that God has given them. To, to, to own their distortions of headship in whatever way that distortion has, has showed itself. And to receive from the Lord new grace to change today, to walk out of here different with new ambitions, new desires, new pursuits in their life. What's needed in every lady's life in the room is to get on their face before the Lord and to right themselves with the Lord, to own their mishaps, to own how their submission has been distorted, to to their role as azer has been neglected, pushed aside, to, to own that before God and their husband to repent of that, to receive new grace from God, to walk differently today. That's what's needed in this room this morning if we wanna see healthy marriages all across this church family. So so where husband, where where wife, where teenager, where single, do we need to be on our face before God, owning our sin, confessing, receiving new grace for a new day? If we want to walk out of here different people today, here is where it starts, with a new moment of surrender to God. That is exactly where it starts. So Father, would you give us a willingness to surrender? God, would you give us a willingness to lay down our rights? God, would you give us a willingness to own our distortions of headship and submission? God, would you give us a new ambition, a new desire to walk in faithfulness? God, to receive from you the precious and distinct calling on our life. God, to portray the certain attributes about Jesus that our particular calling shines forth with greatest clarity. God, would you help the men be faithful heads, the ladies be faithful helpers. God, would you put in us desires, deep desires to walk in these things. God, would you give us this morning a willingness to surrender, to surrender. God, could we sing this out of just a place of desperation asking you to make us this. God, will you give us hearts ready right now in this moment to surrender? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.